Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about The Mountain Lion, which is Jean Stafford's 1947 novel about siblings Ralph and Molly Fawcett and their lives on their Uncle Claude's Colorado ranch in the 1920s. Um, I picked The Mountain Lion. I read this book probably 10 years ago when I was the TA for a class on mid-century women's writing and I loved it so much like I instantly loved it so much <laughs> that I started telling everyone I knew to read it like, it was just it's one of those we all have them right like lesser known things that we just grab people and shake them and are like stop what you're doing and read this this book is ridiculously good although not as well known as it should be I think and um and we all like to bring our lesser known faves to the podcast. <laughs> Ooh, the man of feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we always have to offset it by then reading Middlemarch and Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Buckle buck kids. Sorry. Read of one blood. Go go do it now. Yeah. Oh, that book yeah. is so good. I also really love how this book operates thematically. Like you could if you were talking about it, you could talk about the West or the Western as a genre. You could talk about siblinghood or sibling incest. You could talk about the incredibly weird class form that is the ranch, which is this like uniquely American monstrosity for raising God's dumbest animals. <laughs> and if you think I mean horses or cows, I mean both. Well, and, and, you know, as the, as the, 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 you know, from farm folk uh, on the podcast, I also have to add sheep. I might've told you guys <laughs> when oh. I was a kid, I had a, a pet sheep and it was, it was a very nice, it's weird to say they're nice because like they don't have enough personality to, 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 uh, right, compared you know, to what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well, goats, I mean, goats are, which I think are the most hilarious animal of all time or super no, charismatic. But anyway, one of my earlier memories super is super charismatic. <laughs> well, they are. I mean, the way they, you know, like the, the, way the, the billy goat will like, you know, stomp and pee on its own beard and eat trash like that's, you know. Oh, <laughs> and when you're in the room with one, even if it's a crowded room, you feel like you're the only two people in the, in the place. <laughs> Well, you do because it's fucking staring yeah. at you like an <laughs> asshole. You're watching anyway. shit come out of its ass. <laughs> I was, I was just gonna uh, say that. Yeah, my, one of my earliest memories is my uh, pet sheep. When I was like four, I was like running in the sheep pen, and I fell down, and it would just, it was following me, and it just like stepped right on my head, and I had a big hoof, uh, footprint on my forehead. So, yeah. God. <laughs> oh no, that could have been so bad. <laughs> yeah, so a dog would not do that. Just so you know. Yeah. Yeah. To review pets for yeah. your own kid, a dog would not do that. <laughs> no, no, certainly not. So yeah. I'm just saying, consider your options. <laughs> it's a great story, though. You can't get that story. <laughs> it's true. Uh, my uh, professor parents did not have that in Arcata, California. Um, <laughs> weird. Anyway, Jean Stafford. So yeah. So another thing I really like about it is it's quite like psychoanalytic in its inflections and i had this experience i had a funny experience teaching it which is sort of about that which is that in that the first class that class i was the ta for um it was almost all first and second year undergraduates who obviously you know they're really brilliant and there was no 
there's nothing about them that I would have changed. They're wonderful, but they're not as experienced with the sort of, you know, literary history. Cause of course, you know, that's just where they are. So when I told them, like, we're in that, we're talking about the scene in the hotel where Ralph fantasizes about like licking and then uh, penetrating his sister Leah's head. And I was like, Oh yeah, he's trying to fuck her head. And they <laughs> lost they lost their minds. It was like I told them that they personally wanted to fuck their sister's yeah. head. But but it's I mean it's it's very apparent that that's what's happening. Like you're, you know that's yes. not like some yeah. crazy reading that you that you hit them yeah. with. You know, I said it just like out loud because I didn't think it was going to be controversial. Like I really just yeah. was like, yeah, yeah. You were stating a fact. Yeah. Also, 1947, right? Like yeah. U.S. literature at this moment is so. Oh, so much to psychoanalytic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. History. Yeah. The yeah. year was crazy. 1947. The head <laughs> was your sisters, <laughs> and your other sisters, and yeah. the other yeah. sister. You have a lot of sisters to fuck in the head. But then, like four years later, I taught this in a grad class on mid-century critical genealogies, and I said the same thing. And like you, the grad students were like, "Oh yeah, totally." Like, uh, you know, it's it. <laughs> It's really sad that uh, he then kills his other sister by death fucking her in the head with a bullet. My <laughs> students are cool as fuck. They, they they sure got it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, I'm going to try not to do any more farm digressions on this show. It's Why? We're, we're, we're recording at a... Well, no, I, I was just... We're recording at a somewhat different time of day than we normally do. And I just... I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how I got to the sheep... Uh, footprint story hoofprint but anyway all right take note of the time we're always recording at this time exactly i want to know about more farm animals i yeah i'm fascinated i mean it is kind of like interesting to think about with this book though because this book is so not you know it's like it's not a farm at all because it's no i know it's such an industrialized i mean i mean that's in a not you should talk about farms all day i'm just no no no. but no you're you're you are right and now it's like that thank you for like saving my wadry brain to actually get to a good point. No, I mean it you're what yes, that is that is a hundred percent true. The the ranch at this scale and certainly this family is presented there are I mean it's it's like bourgeois in a way that uh, certainly my experience with farming is not is not that. Uh, but yeah well t- and, and I would love to talk about but yeah, I mean, I wanted to read it because, you know, Megan has told me about this novel many times and said it, it was very good. And, and that that is uh, always enough for me, particularly since the show is committed to proving Megan's thesis that brother sister incest is the major theme of the American novel. And yeah, I mean, I've said now for a few seasons, I, I mean, this seems this is correct. Uh, right. This, so. <laughs> this tracks. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's no selection yeah, I- bias on my part with respect to the books I pick. <laughs> since we have established this i'm now like kind of just seeing it everywhere and yeah i mean i I did i love this book it's beautiful and tragic you know i work primarily on the atlantic in my scholarship and teaching and and frankly largely on on britain um in addition to the caribbean uh so i really enjoy when we read about the u.s west on the pod uh particularly california in the early 20th century which is just such an interesting site of both a lot of broad American tensions, but also quite locationally specific in, in ways that seem important. I would really like to talk about the function of the West as the space of this story, because it, it's so like more broadly the West, right? Because it seems pretty crucial, but I don't quite have my head around what it signifies um, for in, in the novel. 
I also found the way that Stafford constructs childhood and the end of childhood really fascinating. And I have a lot of questions about the pressures that produce those forms here, um, whether these are largely claims about gendering or about class or, or race, too, or, or some mixture thereof. Also, yeah, though, you guys know- it's like a very all of the above sort of situation with this, right? Like yes. the, it has yes. to be a class that growing up adulthood has to be a class form. Yeah. In addition yeah, yeah, to yeah. being a gender and race form, which is like. I had never quite put it that way, but like, oh shit, the idea that adulthood isn't necessarily like has class forms attached to it is an interesting thought, well, and, when, as you say. And I think that the sort of like racial aspects are, I mean, they're certainly, they're clearly present. I think they feel like somewhat more muted than in, say, Faulkner, right? But oh, I for also, sure. yeah. But, but I also think that they are like clearly present. Right. And, and, yeah. the, you know, and we, and we, and we need to think about that. Uh, but yeah, I agree. It is, it is totally an all over the above situation. Also, you guys know there is nothing I love more than dunking on uh, bourgeois dipshit. And there are a few outstanding candidates oh, here. My um, God. <laughs> yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like, like Mrs. Fawcett, absolutely. But also Grandpa Bonnie, who is long dead when the story starts and seems like just the biggest hard on ever. Uh, like, there's, there's this portrait <laughs> of this dude. I mean, yeah, he, I, well, I'm not going to spoil how he dies. Uh, it's real dumb. Uh, but there's like this yeah. portrait of him that's kind of a central object. And, and I just, to quote this one line for the novel he about this portrait he was so spruced up that the children could never get over the idea that he had no that he had not just come from a funeral at which he had been a pallbearer but mrs fawcett assured them that this is the way he had dressed on the most ordinary occasions <laughs> like great cool man you sound awesome yeah. <laughs> i will say though that that line is so like that incredibly funny way that gene stafford has of writing adults Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like yeah. so pithy, and yeah, this book is very disrespectful of adults, and I yeah. mean that in the best possible fucking way. <laughs> yeah, Mo- they mostly suck. Uh, you know, totally, like- <laughs> they do. Yes. Yeah, it is a funny way of. It's the funniest possible way that you can say that somebody walked into a room and everybody felt like who died. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Katie, why do you want to read it? So I am very grateful to Megan for suggesting this. It is a great book. I have a little bit of history with mountain lions. Once while drunk on margaritas, I decided to climb a mountain in Keds. This is totally true. And then I had to slide down said mountain on my bum as it was getting dark and mountain lion and, and danger mountain lion signs were, were littered before me. I was in my late twenties. You are the silliest <laughs> I, drunk person I've ever met in my whole life. <laughs> yeah, I, so, no, sorry. That, that's my, like my my one experience with the mountain lion, which was at fucking Yosemite, right? And, and oh, like geez. and like in the most touristy, I mean, just you know, like hundreds and hundreds of like you know American tourists, right? And I see and like so I'm sitting there, like it was a parking lot, and this jogger's out for his morning jog, and this fucking mountain lion just comes like right on the side of it, it's just, and I'm just like, yeah, talk about the, the west be in a different place <laughs> we, don't, we don't have that yeah. in delaware you know <laughs> i mean that line with a fitbit on its little paw yeah, yeah. they tell you yeah you gotta you know it's like all that you know please don't touch bears for fuck's sake please don't touch bears <laughs> yes they they, they do coyotes they not- are not dogs dumb dumb <laughs> Yes, the bear is not going to sit there acutely eating the hunt the, the pot of honey that you had at your picnic. It's no, going it's to eat, eat your head. Gonna, yeah, it's going to eat your head. Your head. Yeah. It does not just want your picnic basket. Okay. <laughs> 
You yeah. are the picketing. Yeah. And it will, <laughs> just... it will it will defend Boo Boo to the death. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, <that's> true. <laughs> <laughs> Grizzly man ass animals, watch yeah. out. Yeah. And your legs will not whirl around like a windmill, allowing you to go <laughs> faster than a bear. So it's not going to work. But yeah, so this this book, when I, when I first put it down, I was very sad. It's very, very sad. And I'd like to tell you why, but I'll let Megan tell you why. Because I don't want to cry on a podcast. The only thing less dignified than making a pod- podcast is crying on one. And I am nothing if not dignified. So yeah. Um. I just thought it was amazing to have a book that was is super about loss, but is very frank and funny, and they're not mm. not a, a lot of teaching lessons or uh, inspirational moments. It keeps us in this kid reality bubble and doesn't sort of puncture it, which I really like. But it mm. also has that it's it's adult in a fun. It, I sound like I'm talking about a Pixar movie. There's something for grownups too. Um, <laughs> But it's not, I like, this is one of the reasons I love it so much, though, is that childhood is not, like, romanticized. No. But also, like, adults are fucking morons of various sorts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so as we're talking about how great the book is, I also want to plug the intro to it because it's short and it's really cool and it's very, very funny. And it's all about the act of writing from a lot of different perspectives, like, materially and all this stuff and um, there's a super annoying guy who's fixing a desk. It's funny. But anyway, Gene Stafford essentially says- she says, like, he's not New England enough for me and he talked all the time. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. He wasn't, he wasn't sullen and cold enough to fix my desk the way I liked. But she said, pr- she says pretty much, like, I, uh, I felt like a bad person when I wrote at the end of this because it's really sad as shit. And, what, and when I closed the book, I was like, yeah, you should feel bad for making us sad. It's big of you to admit that. But then you remember you've gotten eight flavors of weird grandpa in four pages. And it's all so funny and perfect that you actually can't be that mad. There's also a lot of gross sick kid stuff, a lot of barfs, a lot of nosebleeds. And I would like to take a moment to quickly apologize to a kid named Danny, who I went to kindergarten with Danny. (laughs) Danny, if you're out there, you're definitely not listening to this, but I'm sorry that I barfed on your desk in the middle of a movie about monarch butterflies, and I'm also sorry that I don't remember your last name even a little bit. Um, well, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a, I, I'm young. That, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm old. Anyway, if you like to have your heart broken by books or – you're a total crazy person who thought that Old Yeller and the Separate Peace Kid and Puff the Magic Dragon definitely had it coming. You're going <laughs> to love this book. <sighs> it's so good. So today we are talking about gender and sexuality, childhood, puberty, adult, adulthood, and the conceptions of space like the West and California and the family and class forms. So... So the book is, as we've said, about the brother and sister, Molly and Ralph Fawcett, and their lives between California and their uncle's ranch in Colorado. The book isn't technically organized this way, but I, it, like, when I think about it, I think of it as being, like, in three parts, which are, the first is at their home in Covina, California, which is outside of LA. The second is at the ranch in 
Colorado while they're spending summers there. And the third is taking place four years later at the ranch when they move there longer term. They're there for at least a year. In the first part, we meet Ralph and Molly, who are that great genre of literary child. They're super weird, um, (laughs) kind, you know, sickly, which is that like, you know, the secret garden, like, version of a kid (laughs) and they have all these little in jokes that i find utterly charming like they do they have like bits that they do with each other that are very funny well yeah and what honestly even the the sickliness is kind of part of that so what is it they'd had scarlet fever and since then they both have like sympathetic nosebleeds like one will nose will start bleeding and so will the other and so they both get to go home from school at the same time and they're just like (laughs) yeah like just like streaming blood and just like yeah we're out of school (laughs) (laughs) the mom's like you're doing this on purpose somehow i know it yeah yeah oh my god their mother and all they, but all they really want to do is fun shit, like climb trees. But their mother is a hundred pounds of chrysanthemums stuffed into a Swiss dot dress. Who has these like two other daughters, Leah and Rachel, who are also like high femme idiots. I have no idea what the fuck is up with those names. That is like those are weighty ass names to drop together in a book. Yeah, it, they seem yeah. to have no significance whatsoever. So yeah. if anybody wants to yeah. do Bible times and tell me what they think, K- fucking Katie, email what, me. what, what, I, like, do some exegesis here. <laughs> I know everybody's looking at me, but I actually agree. I don't, I, I don't think we can. This is the first time I'm ever going to say this, but I don't know that we can do anything with the Bible and yeah. in a book by yeah. of American literature. I mean, I and that's what I mean. It's like I don't think there's anything there. I just think those two particular names together yeah. are it feels pointed, but it doesn't yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. surely yeah. that's gotta be some surely this is some East of Eden business, but yeah. it's not. Thinks so? I don't think so. I mean, I you know, I'm also trying to think of this through like their the sort of like the families class form and stuff like that but they're they're like ultra waspy right yep. and so the ultra biblical like they're not of that evangelical kind of like puritan strain of protestantism like they seem like fucking episcopalians to you know like rich ass episcopalians and so those are weird yeah you're right those are weird names to to to, cha- to choose and those yeah. particular names like rachel this i know this because it my grandparents wanted to name my aunt rachel they didn't mm-hmm. Because it was too Jewish. They are Jewish, but that's not, they didn't right. want to be Jewish, seem Jewish. <laughs> but so Leah and Rachel are exceptionally Jewish names. Like, yeah, yeah. So my now thought is that just like they go together and Ralph and Molly, they're not like those are, the, the, I don't, that's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Ralph no. and Molly. No, 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 no. Like Ralph, Ralph and Molly are like, you know, rough and tumble American kids or something. Those are very American names to me. I mean, Molly, I guess is an Irish name, but they, they're not like literally married to, they're not like both married to the founder of a religion. You know? (laughs) Yeah. 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 What? The 12 tribes of who? So, okay. So that's their family. And in this, the first section, their step grandfather comes to visit. He's their mother's mother's, second husband he's cool he is cool their mother does not like him though no no because she's a fluffy bunny of a grown-up woman who thinks 
climbing trees will kill you. And he drinks whiskey, even though it's prohibition. And yeah, it's true. But he is, even though he seems very salt of the earth. He's actually a rich guy. He owns four cattle yeah. ranches, including one in Colorado that is run by his son Claude. And then he sort of—it's not—he doesn't die suddenly, but he dies in that section. He's at their house, and his son Claude comes to Kavina for the funeral. And he offers to take Molly and Ralph off of Mrs. Fawcett's hands for the summer. She does sort of definitely think they're going to be like trampled to death or get anthrax or whatever. But she agrees and she says it's because there's there's a housekeeper. I think she's like, there's a lady there to take care of you. So you probably won't get anthrax. And it's definitely not because she hates them and wants to only (laughs) hang out with her other kids. Yeah, and I just to to go back to the grandfather. You pointed out that you know he yeah he's a rich guy. He also like he's traveled the whole world and stuff like this. And and which okay, I mean this again. This is the 1920s, and he almost feels like a Jackson Hole billionaire who's flying his yeah. private like the 1920s yeah. version of that. I yeah, mean, totally. it's just you don't think of like rancher in the 1920s as being like. I mean, not jet setting because those didn't exist, but like, yeah, like hopping on the fucking Queen Mary and doing like, you know, trans Pacific, uh, you know, like adventures. That's just, you know, that's it's it, it. So, I mean, again, I, I think that like the like when it's set just like further marks that like this, this is a very, very bourgeois family, even though they're not living on the Upper East Side, they have right. a different, you know, it's the West. So that takes a different form or something like that. Well, there's no, I think maybe that. It being the West is also part of why we there's like there's no new money, old money conflict ever staged in this book. Like it just never even comes up. Whereas yeah. in some other books, it would be like, oh, they made their money like, you know, whatever, killing, shooting cows in the head. It doesn't come up like we don't care in this book. Right. Well, and it's not been it's it's the the Astor's fortune, right, starts with uh, like John Jacob Astor's like a, a trapper in in the mountain but but that yeah. but like by the by by the gilded age that it's like no what we do is own massive buildings in new york city because like now our money's been like laundered into this new form whereas yeah, yeah so but yeah there's mm-hmm. not there's not that like kind of laundering of like the origins of the bourgeoisie impulse here mm-hmm. and like i think that is because yeah the west that's it's, it's a western kind of form here if anything it's like better better i mean it's more appealing to be like oh he made it with his hands which of course he didn't but like no yeah i mean that's notion yeah Yeah, i mean all yeah yeah, emphasize the the settler colonialism of all of this right but like oh yeah absolutely okay so so they are going to spend the summer in colorado and just a little quote which is that um for the first weeks of this first visit to uncle claude ralph and molly were not happy and most of the time they were afraid the landscape itself was frightening. And for me, this is like a big thing in this book, which is the landscape and the sort of the danger and potential danger of it, the wildness of it. And it has that like, this is another part of another dynamic of this book is that it does sort of like play into that genre of Western that's like foreboding, Mm -hmm. right? This book so telegraphs everything that's going to happen. Yeah. When I was prepping i went back and started to read blood meridian and then i stopped because i was like oh i hate this book I <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like of a tradition that's like the really grim version of the western yeah yeah something we've read on the show and a little bit 
the Jack London, right? What like the the but but also uh, McTeague's California, right? Oh, for sure. like, oh, there's there's <laughs> this there's this yeah. island of island of like quote unquote civilization in San Francisco, which has which is that like very you know like the kind of like the urbanness of the naturalist novel. But then it's like, but you get into those mountains and suddenly it's the terrified resonance of like the Burkean sublime, right? Like nature yeah. will yeah, eat yeah, yeah. you, you know, like yeah. Too many. If you don't slide down the mountain on your ass, and you're gonna get eaten. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's no one's uh, put up danger mountain lion side. It just the, the mountain lion's no. gonna no, be there. To there. Eat face, you know? <laughs> no warning. The the wonderful wild wildness, and it's in this sort of section that this is the beginning of the sort of fracturing of Ralph and Molly's relationship. Uncle Claude encourages Ralph to learn to ride, although he's not he's not great at it, but he does seem to sort of adapt. And Molly doesn't get to do any of the fun boy stuff, but she does fun weirdo any gender stuff like writing, which is <laughs> is her big thing, which is yeah. very cute. And then the third part is actually like the whole second half of the novel I'm realizing now, but it's that's how I organize this. And this takes place four years later. So yeah. they're back in... Okay, sorry. They're back in California because they've been only spending summers there. And Molly is increasingly surly because she's 12. (laughs) And Ralph is very much over it. He's like over these like stuffy nincompoops in Los Angeles. And he's like, I gotta go. But the older girls, our two sisters, are apparently graduating from boarding school and the, their mother wants to take them on a trip, the, the two older girls, on a trip around the world so they can be Amy March, but like stupid. Really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, yeah, really, yeah. really stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, like, you know, even today, of course, right? The trip around the world is like that. Oh, okay. So you're fucking bourgeois. In the 1920s, it's like, I mean, that, you know, like, it, oh, yeah, I'm going to, well, one, just, I'm going to take off for like four months to do this. The degree of wealth is sort of important to whatever's happening here, you yeah, know. For sure. Um, and it's, and it's attention, right? Like, yeah. To what degree it appears in their lives and when yes. is interesting. Yes. So she's going to take them on the stripper on the world. And that will mean that Ralph and Molly will have to spend the year with Uncle Claude in Colorado. And Molly's surliness is only compounded by this, that and the fact that her whole identity is now writer. But she is very good at both the theory, which is being an asshole, and the praxis, which is writing stuff down. And Ralph has developed history's weirdest case of teenage horniness at least that's how i perceive it this involves both the earlier scene where he fantasizes about like kissing and then licking his sister's head yeah he's very fixated on this vein in her forehead like he is yeah it's it's, really odd but yeah because he's just like zeroing in like you know really like fucking he's he's, he's like he's like painting a target right which i mean yeah yeah yeah, which i mean then as you'll get to comes back in a very fucked up way uh but yeah yeah so he's just like he's he's being weird i mean he's 14 he's being weird on the and on the train to the ranch, he says to Molly, who who has this interesting sort of like sex. She's sexless in an interesting way, and I don't totally mean genderless, but she doesn't seem to have a sexuality. 
She seems yeah. to be aggressively anti-sexuality. Yeah. And he tells her, he says to her, tell me all the dirty words you know, which the book tells us is the end of their childhood. Yeah. As well as the end of their friendship. And it's really, I kept thinking about like, what is it about that? Yeah. I, I'm still sort of chewing on it. Like why that line is the one. Yeah. And, I mean, I think there's a few possibilities that I was, I was playing with. One is that, as you just like Molly's aggressively kind of like anti-sex, there's a way in which like what puberty means is like splitting there in a way that are, are, is very hostile to each other. The, the like eroticizing, like incestuous impulse that we see Ralph doing seems primarily directed as older and much more conventionally like femme, like bourgeois femme sister Leia. Yeah. But like, you, you know, the fact that he moves from like those the fantasies about Leia, which also I mean, do make him like himself very uncomfortable to then that kind of sexualizing moment there with his sister but at the same time it's just like like molly's overt kind of refusal of like the body period i mean we talked a little bit about that before we began she's got this whole anti-fat thing she wants her body to like go away in in ways that i mean i think there's a lot lots of uh things we could talk about the psychology there but but yeah anyway so i there i i don't quite know what it's doing either but those were sort of those were a couple ideas I was kind of trying to make work, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those to- totally work. I really do. I think that sort of relatedly, there's this uh, line in the sort of close to the beginning of the book where Molly's really upset that Ralph won't keep uh, won't say that they'll get married. Yes. Yes. And she yeah. she then later asks if she if her uncle is going to marry her. Yeah. So she has so but especially with Ralph, right? So that scene comes about after I think that uh he's heard the uncle saying dirty words to to some woman and so it's like the version of getting married that she wants and the version of getting married that Ralph is like fantasizing about or wanting mm-hmm. or like thinking about are two totally different things and one involves sex and dirty words and one right, involves yeah. marrying your brother because you want to be a kid forever. Yes. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I was just another kind of set of ideas to layer onto that. I just have questions about what it is that marks Ralph and Molly as kind of outsiders to the very sort of conventional bourgeois family that they're in. I mean, one is that, uh, you know, because, yeah, I mean, Megan mentioned they're like secondly, they kind of like they're they're very kind of close and, and in a way that is both excluded by and excludes other members of their family t- uh, to start before we get to that kind of crisis moment. But like, yeah, I mean, so is it just is it just rebelling against the confining structures of their kind of class form? Is it their perceived sickliness uh, or something that that marks them as kind of outsiders? Yeah. So anyway, it's just it's it is very interesting that they start as this outsidery pair within the family mm-hmm. structure that then at this moment, I don't know, it's it, it's almost like Molly gets pushed even kind of further away that in a way that like Ralph can't follow or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think also, like, once the larger burden of sexuality and gender fall over them, like, their responses are so completely different. And she's not, you know, from a structural, like, novel point of view, like, she can't survive this book. Yeah. with the gender that she has. Well, it's, it's almost like Ralph gets, I mean, this is like, this is just coming to me. Ralph, like, accepts 
his interpolation into a gender structure in a way that he kind of tries to defer or resist his interpolation into a class structure. That's why he mm-hmm. wants to go live in the back, like back to nature or whatever. But like, oh, I'm a teenage boy and I'm going to do gross teenage boy things, including this fucking in- incestuous shit. Whereas yeah. like Molly also continues like she she's not going to be interpolated by the glass war, but she's also not going to be interpolated in this kind of like sort of traditional or like, you know, kind of conventional cis gender form either. Right. And she has to have history's weirdest hobby, which is she's a writer. Yeah. I love seeing a writer pop up in a novel because you're like, oh, this person's going to be a crazy yeah. person. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so when they get to the ranch, like now they're we, we know that they're going to be staying there long term. Her narrative gets even stranger. And the early part of the book really is more from Ralph's point of view, but it really sort of switches into hers as it. But it's not a hundred percent of it. It's it's close third, but sometimes it's Ralph and sometimes it's Molly. So while he's de- sort of like developing a sexuality, Molly is not only retreating from sexuality; she's retreating from anything like bodiliness, yeah. like having a body. She self describes. She envisions herself as quote a wooden box with a mind inside, yeah. um, which is fucking crazy. Like that's an amazing. Yeah. metaphor she's she's averse to the idea of the corporeal form i think yeah. so she takes a bath in her swimsuit which I, it's like yeah what yeah 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 well she i'm sorry do you, do you talk about the acid thing at all no i i didn't yeah. but she she burns herself is it it's not on purpose yeah it, yeah it is she's yeah she, it she did it to, yeah. yeah with I, hydrochloric acid because yeah. the because the doctor's like wasn't it closed like it's clearly yeah. bullshit. That- oh right, I just couldn't yeah. remember what. No, I know she did it on purpose, but I couldn't remember what she thought it was. No, she 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 knew it was a- yeah. It's 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 acid that they use for some some kind of like processing, uh, like walnuts or something like that. And like yeah. yeah, they're like one of their their um farm workers is is like yeah, don't don't touch this. This is acid. And like yeah, she uncorks the bottle and she's like, oh, I'm gonna pour this all over my hand. And it's, it's like sort of to uh because she's pissed off at Ralph, but it's also like very much her kind of like mortification of the flesh isn't even right because it's not it's not like this penance type thing it doesn't seem it's more her like yeah like i'm just like i'm rejecting the very idea of having a body in physical form like you were saying Megan. yeah i mean and it's it's so different in terms of like she's physically i think it's clear by that point that she's not physically fragile anymore in the way that they open the book with having been physically fragile because of the scarlet fever but she seems never to be able to true up with having a physical form yeah 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 it's an amazing part of this book for me is just how you just cannot square that circle. Like it's completely just stays with you after you finish the book is, is that dynamic of it. She also like at this point develops this odd obsession with fatness, which is, it's neither totally literal nor totally metaphorical. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It is, she finds bodies gross and so she finds fatness in the sense of having more body to be gross but it's not but nor is it like a metaphor for wealth or something you know like it's not yeah. she makes it sort of anything she wants she says to ralph at one point you know it's bad enough to be a fat woman but a fat man like that is the that's the worst thing you can be i right. think is what she so, so she sees it as a i think it's like not that she just wants to be disembodied and live in a world of full brains floating in jars she sort of has a 
profoundly antisocial impulse that makes her cool that makes her like a really yeah. cool interesting character it makes her the writer right like that's just what it does totally but it also makes her i think just want to use anything as a cudgel that she can find <laughs> well she certainly yeah. is an asshole yeah yes yeah 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 for sure she as I was, like she is a huge dick to just absolutely everyone ralph certainly but like she calls the cook the n-word which is yeah. just a really awful moment and i and i don't think the book tries to the book clearly makes it clear that this is an awful nasty thing to do yeah yeah yes. she also like corrects everybody's speech or there's this moment where like this uh girl winifred who lives on the ranch is telling a story and she's like well that can't have been true because blah 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 blah, blah. and it's just like oh molly shut up you're so yeah, yeah. annoying yeah yeah the 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 pedantic 12 year old is no is no one's favorite uh character no but also like you're when you're 12 like you don't have this the social experience i don't know i'm more forgiving of it than i would be an adult but still yeah yeah. for sure yeah but she also has these odd little projects sort of obsessive projects that i actually think are kind of sweet like she she writes down like every mean thought she has in her diary <laughs> um <laughs> which is like very precious yeah and she also has this she there's a point where she finds hyper like wintering ladybugs and she starts collecting them and sending them in a box to a lab and she has this like <laughs> baroque fantasy about how like grateful the scientists are to her for sending them like boxes full of ladybugs yeah, 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 and there, yeah. There's there is the novel's kind of like they were just like okay, that thanks. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, all right. She's like convinced she's going to be mentioned in a peer-reviewed article. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah, yeah. it's like very sweet, but like incredibly weird. Which is just, yeah, that's her. And it's in this sort of same piece of the novel that we learn that Uncle Claude is on the trail of a mountain lion that he's seen and he calls her goldilocks and this has been kind of become his mission yeah. or obsession is to is to kill the mountain lion we know that there have been mountain lions in these mountains historically but no one's seen one in like 20 years and this all comes sort of together when ralph and uncle claude accompany molly on one of her little ladybug science rescue missions and the three of them see the mountain lion but claude and ralph haven't brought their guns so they can't shoot her and it is her the mountain lion is never referred to by any other like pronoun not it not he always her and it's important as blonde as a movie star as blonde as a movie star goldilocks yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird thing and star Wars. and so then the the winter continues and molly is keeping up her writing continuing to be incredibly weird and on easter uh ralph and claude eventually see the mountain lion again the pivotal scene and they're sort of coming at her from two different angles and they both shoot at the mountain lion simultaneously but only one of them hits her and the other shot and we have been again this has been telegraphed the whole novel hits molly in the forehead because she's been out on this hike and that's this is all sort of revealed simultaneously is that like she's out there 
they simultaneously fire one of the bullets hits the mountain lion the other one hits molly in the head that's the, the almost last scene but it actually winds down with sort of ralph like you know the flooding tears and he kisses her forehead of course because this is you know we have to pull these things together Mm -hmm. and then sort of surprisingly the the cook magdalene has the last word yeah and this is the woman who she's called the n-word who's herself an extremely strange person (laughs) yeah yeah um because everyone on this ranch is like weird as fuck that is worth saying and she sees molly and the last words of the book are magdalene's and she says lord jesus that poor little old piece of white trash which you know because stafford is stafford that doesn't resolve anything and we feel sad and angry (laughs) yeah yeah i mean magdalene's you know she's she's in several scenes and like yeah megan your the way molly treats her like shit and everything is is notable I don't know. It's like, yeah, like we're just Ralph with the body would have been in some ways the logical way to end. But no, but Stafford brings this. Yeah, I mean, fairly minor in terms of like the like the mechanisms of the action character back to do it. Um, and it, I, I don't know, like that that line does feel so freighted, you know, both with with race, but also class claims, the yeah. fancy bourgeoisie mm-hmm. into quote into white trash. Right. And yes, I mean, it, it, it does feel like the, the like classes. Uh, self-contained and and the kind of racial form self-containment gets like pierced then by like oh right there are these all these other people around this this weird little incestuous drama that um you know suddenly we're we're reminded of at the end but yeah it's it is a very upsetting ending for sure you're so right like if it had ended with ralph crying over her it would be a very different book because we would also be like Okay, so, you know, she's too weird to live in the world. Okay, and so we close on her innocence or whatever. And yeah. But this way, we don't at all. We're reminded of how cruelly she's treated this woman. She's not just this wooden box with a mind inside. She's sometimes cruel, deeply troubled character. Yeah. She's not going to, Stafford isn't going to let us as readers off the hook and let us reify her as the innocent. No. There's a line at the end when they're putting her in the car and they said they it's like they sat her they sat her up like she was a person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is also sort of related to the that poor little piece of white trash because it's it's both exactly what Molly didn't want to be which is that her physical form but it's it's all it's all fake at that point like it's exactly mm. The book is acting like she's a puppet or a mannequin, which is sort of is what she wants in a way. I mean, and she fantas and she right like she's about to be put in the box that she has fantasized her body being. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's that's great. That's a great point. When I was kind of talking earlier about thinking what it is that sets Ralph and Molly apart, I do just want and maybe we'll get back to this when we talk a little bit more about like kind of uh, gender and like the the father or the absent father or whatever but like so ralph and molly's father's dead but we almost don't you know i the whole novel i was expecting it to like what happened and it doesn't right no in addition to all the other like kind of gender tensions class tensions there is the stated or suggested idea of like some kind of loss at like a young age 
but it never like fills in that blank. And so I don't know that it really does, you know, so th- that's another problem that's percolating here, but that yeah. I don't think is really, it, it's like suggested, but then like, yeah, but can you really like sort of hang your interpretation on that? Not, not really. Well, what if it's like more abstract in the sense that the way I read that and you can disagree with me is that it's something like, you know, you can't have edible closure in this novel, yeah. right? Yeah, like that's yeah. not what it's going to allow. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, yeah. it's resolved and it's fine because it doesn't help to have a better family structure. No, <laughs> no. right? It's the the in her incapacity to line up to her gender is it's not because of a specific trauma. It's because like the Oedipal structure of the family is a yeah. gigantic fucking question mark. Yeah, so Claude yeah. is never yeah. like their dad, you know, like he's never going to fill in that position. Yeah. Get some kind of novel would do that. Right. Then they would feel yeah. like resolution. It would be okay. And they would be fine. Yeah. But it's like fatherlessness is just one more facet of like the fucked up of the nuclear family and its yeah. desire to make you have a gender. Yeah. I just think this novel is very Freudy. Like, I mean, it's actually not Freudy so much as it is psychoanalytic, thematically speaking. It also has the kind of dream, like, everything fits together dream logically. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, can I just uh, one uh, one one quick thought to to slightly break the the very depressing uh, note note we're uh, we're on here, which is that I so like Claude's Uncle Claude's uh, desire to hunt the mountain lion is the um, early 20th century fucking dipshit Teddy Roosevelt version of a phenomenon uh, now, which is like keeping uh, exotic pets. And I was just, I, I, I saw this video on like YouTube of this like fucking rich, like obviously white couple who have pet mountain lions. And they're like, they're like, yeah, here, oh, they no. just, they watch TV with us here. Look, it's eating a steak right now, like a raw piece of meat. And they're like, yeah, they're so friendly. This one's broken my hand several times. Just play by it's like, it's oh like, no! It's like television show, like dangerous obsession or something about this, and like spoiler yeah. alert, everybody dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I mean yep. it's like, yep. it's yep. like when your pet gives you quote unquote love bites that shatters your hand, then it's probably not an animal that you're meant to domesticate. Yeah, why is it living in a house with you? <laughs> I mean, I will fully admit they are really cool looking animals and they're like, you know, they're not that big. They're kind of like, you know, mid-size, well, mid to large size dog size, but they are like fierce predators that will eat your fucking face, you know? Like, so. And they're stealth predators. So the idea yeah. that I might come home and be like, it's awfully quiet in here, a little yeah. too quiet. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and suddenly it like springs from the top of like yeah! a... You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd also like to keep a chimpanzee. They certainly don't rip off your oh face God, and genitals. Yeah. Oh my! Yeah. Oh my! Th- that is really something. No, the chimps are to me scarier than any other kind of wild animal that people try to keep. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. No. Well, because they. I mean, because they so have strong. Yes, they they're extremely strong, and they really are smart. almost as smart as humans. You know. Yeah. And they so. cannot be. They're still wild animals. Like they cannot yeah. be domesticated well they're i mean they're wild animals that have their own like extremely elaborate like social code and structure like you know so it's city that it's like you think it's like part of your family and it's like no it's got its own like sort of like family <laughs> understandings which might include ripping your head off you know it's a social 
Oh, that like yeah. libertarians want, right? Like I don't get <laughs> yes. my way, so I'm going to rip you into tiny yeah. pieces. Exactly. Yeah. It's so scary. And the mountain lion, even in this, is like when they kill it, they see how small it is. Yes. Yeah. And it's yeah. A, it's like another one of those moments where you're like, your heart breaks. Yeah. It wasn't even fucking worth it. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. You know, and Molly is not, it's not like she is the mountain lion, but they are joined together in this really interesting way. Killing her and killing the mountain lion are simultaneous. And also it's gives a form or a body to the sort of like desired undesirable. Yes. I think there's the uncle's explicit wish. It's Claude's explicit wish to kill the mountain lion. It is Ralph's unstated or it's Ralph's stated wish that Molly would disappear. Yes, absolutely. There's a bit of fulfillment, wish fulfillment in both. And like one is unsatisfying and one is shattering. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. But it's both th- those are both characteristically adult experiences. Yeah. Oh, that's totally true. Yeah. I had also forgotten I was talking to my husband after the three of us were texting cuz I have read this so many times that I forget that you that you all started this without knowing how it ends. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This isn't a super yeah. famous book. You didn't know and I was just like, "Oh shit, I forget." Yeah that right so it's like oh shit this is like their eyes were watching god shit you don't know that there's going to be this incredibly devastating moment right although although you saw the intro yeah Yeah. the intro intro. i did i might not have i might have i really might have known something was going to happen but really not that at all but once you get the intro that's like what i did to my character was so awful then you flip to the I, i flip to the back what do you what do you yeah yeah. Right, but that wasn't in the first version. Yeah, ex- right. yeah, so like there's a real way to go into this and get totally clobbered gut punch. Yeah. I just forget it because, you know, once you've read something several times, you don't have that same relationship to it. No. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, and there's also like, so one other, I mean, I totally agree with everything that you guys are saying. There's one other piece here that I think goes back to like what space signifies. My grandmother was Eastern Shore farm folk that lived at the same 10 mile radius for 350 years. And her stories fucking tragic, like just, just like stuff that happens in the country, like, and like shooting accidents, a huge part of that, just, you know, kids, I I do think that that is like, it is to some degree present as well, right? This, this space as not for moms, you know, ultra bourgeois, super safe uh, human society and, and like, like attractive in some way, like Ralph really gets drawn into it. Yeah, it's attractive until it fucking kills your right. sister, right? Right. Or, or creates the conditions where you kill your sister, you know, like, so, yeah. Absolutely, entirely. There's this thing where it's it's attractive and you want to be part of it. And one way that Ralph tries to be part of it is by not wearing his glasses anymore. And <laughs> yes. you certainly can't yes. help but think. Yes. You certainly yeah. Can, yeah. I mean, you really can't help but think, yeah. God damn it, if he had his glasses on, I wouldn't would, have- I, Totally. He wouldn't have shot yeah, it in the well, fucking head. Yeah. Well, that's such a, that's too, like, such a, like, masculinist kind of bullshit, like, that I've got, well, I'm going to perform being a real man. And it's like, okay, yeah, you do that. Nature doesn't fucking care about your bullshit gender constructions, you know? Like, yeah. it's, yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah. uncle has pressured him into it and he's, like, getting barfing from headaches. And he's yeah. like, but now I can sort of see is good with the, yeah. and yeah. No, obviously, yeah. no, like, no. no. 
Well, know. and it's it's making me think too. The book does this amazing job of of staging like bourgeois, hyper feminized. The first, you know, the first half that's full of these foofy girls who are like mm-hmm. uh, they talk. There's a lot of like fabric porn in this book, which I love about like mm-hmm. chintzes and fucking you know voils and then so you're kind of going like oh they're gonna get to a ranch and she's gonna learn how to ride and it's gonna be dope and they're gonna climb trees and whatever nope the hyper masculine version is also a complete fucked space yeah yes you're in Werner herzog you know like (laughs) yes No, yeah. Oh yes. my god, yeah. Yes. Fucking hell yeah. It's totally like I will <laughs> yeah. not I will not play yeah. the audio of him yes. getting mangled. No, they, no, no, exactly. And, and and also they should make this and uh they should <gasps> they should make this as a movie and they should have Werner Herzog as the narrator, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> that, oh my god, that, that is so not, good. Ralph did not realize that nature is not a tameable space. (laughs) 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 Movies of modernist novels is narrated by... That's a good idea. I I will. I probably never. Well, I'm sure I will make an opportunity for this. But uh, here's my pitch to Hollywood. Okay, right? Like a Werner, a Werner Herzog biopic starring Stellan Skarsgård as Werner Herzog, directed by Werner Herzog. I love, I, I can't imagine anything better. It should have been Klaus Kinski, but he's dead. So we can. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talk about Herzog on Herzog on Herzog. Well, yeah, you could just, I mean, I just, I think that Stellan Skarsgård uh, looks a lot and sounds like uh, 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 Herzog, but you could just have Herzog as himself. That would, I would watch that. Yeah. You know? I think it should be Stellan Skarsgård in the first part, and then in each of the like separate acts all six of his sons <laughs> yeah, 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 there you go i was gonna say the tall one and then i'm like they're all tall the hot one they're all hot just just tall blonde men interchangeably yeah, playing Werner yeah. herzog this is the coolest most mind palace shit we ever dreamed up yeah we're not even high folks no, no not a single person we don't record no. high or drunk we're just like this yeah <laughs> i am gonna give a context it's gonna be fast but i want to sort of focus more historically than anything but it's just a given that novels of the 1940s are a strange group <laughs> in u.s literary history there are not a lot of them, which is there's like this world historical event thingy and like stuff and a and busy, busy with stuff, <laughs> paper shortage, <laughs> not very many. There are some really good ones, right? Like Steinbeck has a lot of stuff from the 40s and the Chester Himes novel, If He Hollers, Let Him Go. And the Native Son is 1940. Like there's there are some, but fewer than usually. And when I say that, I mean, like compared to. In particular, the 1950s, which in the US is like this boom in the novel. Most of the things that we think of as being like famous US novels, in my opinion, are published in the 50s. That's when Saul Bellow starts publishing and and Ralph Ellison and Lolita is from the early 50s. Like it's just a huge decade yeah. for the US novel. And Jean Stafford published her first novel, Boston Adventure, in 1944. And it was a bestseller, but it did go out of print um although it was republished by the new york review of books press in 2021 it's really it's really good it's 
I was going to say, it's funnier than this book. Although this book is actually quite funny. It Tra- really is. Yeah. Tragic, funny. And it's it has a lot of stuff on class mobility. It's one of those, you know, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court kind of vibes where it's like somebody tries to pass up class-wise, <laughs> which I, I love that genre. Yeah. And she won the O. Henry Prize for short fiction in 1955. She won a Pulitzer for short fiction in 1969. And so the question of like why she had gone so far out of fashion is, you know, we don't know any of these things. We can't pin it to one particular thing because almost all books go out of print, right? So you can't be like, oh, it's just about gender. It's just about this. But I would sort of pose that it might have something to do with the fact that in U.S. literary reception, and maybe you guys have other feelings about other places, but the novel is the object we talk about. U.S. theater is certainly important, but not not compared to the study of the novel. Poetry is important, but most significantly, I think, is that short fiction is really not an academic object. That may that certainly makes sense to me as an explanation. Yeah, it, well, it's weird too because the short story is such a huge and central part of the U.S. sort of literary tradition, you know? Like, it's born in the U.S. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. it's like, and, I mean, but all kinds of, you know, the, the sort of exemplar of this is somebody yeah. like Fitzgerald, right? So he yeah. wrote fiction, he wrote novels for him and short stories to eat, he says. Yeah. And yeah. yet you read The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, and it's like, this is so extraordinarily constructed that yeah. to say like this isn't good but yeah the great gatsby is good it's just bonkers well and yeah i mean like what you're not you know like you're gonna discount like most of what hawthorne and poe wrote like in favor like we can only talk about the house of the seven gables like no or right or fucking melville bartleby is not that far beneath moby dick in terms of its both uh well conceptual brilliance but also its importance to mid-19th century u.s literature you know that's right and I think yeah. it's like a particular mid 20th century thing, too, because the short story was like a money, you know, published in something like the New Yorker, right? So it feels like a way of being connected to magazine culture, which is so aggressively middle brow. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's not like little magazines published a lot of short stories. That just wasn't right. there when right. they did. So she had been, I think, really like associated with the short story because she'd won prizes for that. But her novels are amazing and i think that like shirley jackson that's been a way of rehabilitating her right so shirley jackson is also like kind of best known for short stories but oh yeah her novels and she really only has two three are absolutely amazing like the haunting of hill house is just the sine qua non of 20th century horror (laughs) just will be around the house and think about the ending of it oh my god all the time yeah yeah Yeah. i think about like the stupid like the fail nephew in that book it's like the platonic form of the fail nephew yeah 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 stafford she's starting to be read again again like the nyrb press huge fucking shout out to them they really have brought back some amazing early and mid 20th century fiction and the books are beautiful. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. The William Attaway book that we're going to read next season is them. I just love them. And so Stafford, biographically, she was also, she was born in Covina, 
her dad wrote pulp westerns, which I find really <laughs> charming. She started writing really young, like as a teenager. She wrote for most of her life, which was incredibly depressing as lives go, and involved getting married to a bunch of awful human men, including Robert Lowell. And I can't really imagine anything worse than being married to Robert Lowell. <laughs> and like Shirley Jackson and almost all other mid-century women writers, she was a serious alcoholic. She died in 1979 of cardiac arrest, which in this case, I think we can pretty clearly know is like a complication from alcoholism. We also know that she stopped eating. And so it's a tenant sort of malnutrition was also a complicating mm. factor, which again, just classic mid-century writer, men, women, all gender folk, yeah. just drink and starve yourself to Oof. pieces. The malnutrition aspect just like chills me for some reason. Like obviously like yeah. addiction is a terrible, terrible disease, but many yeah. of its like attendant factors are also Oh yeah, no, chilling. it's the the yeah, the the way in which just other just the you know, keeping your organism alive just kind of goes out the the window in advanced yeah. uh you know, advanced advanced cases like that. Yeah. Well, no, I mean thanks for thanks for introducing us to her. Uh, I I really did enjoy this. At the opening, I talked about the one that the hard on grandfather, grandpa Bonnie, who's long dead. And he's like this Missouri gentleman, but he's like a scholar, you know, he's the scholar. Like he, he, he reads boring shit in his library and lets other people like handle his, you know, the production of uh, agricultural wealth on his, his estate. So one of the reasons why Mrs. Fawcett, who is, she's gotten off kind of easy. I mean, she's like one of the bigger bourgeois dipshits in novels that oh we've read. Oh my yeah. insufferable just so insufferable uh she, she's like terrified of horses in addition to everything else she's because terrified her, of, she thinks that she doesn't want them to climb trees because she thinks yeah. you'll get a splinter and a splinter will go to your heart and kill you yes well and yep yes and like so it's the, what uh the novel says starts all of this is she was learning to ride and her beloved father grandfather bonnie scratched his his hand on a nail and like a fence post and then got blood poisoning which again like yeah that was shit that happened in the country like back in the day but but anyway so like yeah there's this that his uh mild uh stepping outside of like the safe space of his like bourgeois like mansion killed him and then like like here's grandpa <laughs> yeah. Kenyon who like is the rancher man and like so you know threat leader whatever that but anyway there's this- he didn't need no tetanus shot yeah yeah <laughs> right he, yeah he doesn't need no tetanus shot how he funny just, is yeah. that we have rich St Louis families like already yeah. two of them in the season. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. My my Eastern focus probably showing here, but it's just I see like St. Louis marked as like the center of wealth. The metropolis is is St. Louis and not New York or Boston, as it is with like East Coast novels, right? Which right. is kind of funny. But it is um, funny. Sorry, were you going to say something else about the? the oh yeah, no, I was just. Yes, I yes, I was just going to say that like so there's this amazing uh there's this amazing paragraph that I just wanted to read that again just shows a little bit more about like what it is the bodies represent but also like the weird class fixations of this family right um, so this is on page 50 Leah and Rachel and Ralph and Molly could not remember a time when they had not known that grandfather Bonnie had personally met Grover <laughs> Cleveland at the Democratic <laughs> Convention in 1888 <laughs> He had himself been a Republican and had always voted a straight ticket, uh, but all the same, he never had anything harsh to say of Mr. Cleveland, although he was naturally glad that Mr. Harrison had won the election. 
this connection of her grandfather. Also, just I'm sorry, like the after after the death of Grant, or not the, the death of Grant. After after uh, Grant uh, leaves the uh, the White House, the presidents of the last two decades of oh, the 19th century God. are some of the most useless, boring, yep. pointless assholes, including fucking like look at William McKinley. Yeah, they're all from Ohio, right? Look at, yeah. look at, look at a picture of William McKinley, and I swear to God, his like no. face is like, please don't shoot me, Mister Anarchist, sir. Like, I mean, he just, he just, he has the look. He has the look of a dumbass who's going to get assassinated. Is Leon Shogash yeah. a hero? Maybe. <laughs> Too soon, right? I, 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 <laughs> if you want to remember any of these presidents, you need a mnemonic device. That's how, yes, like, yes, totally. Yes. Yeah, well, and, and Cleveland has the distinction of he like they were like, "Yeah, you suck. We're gonna vote for this other dumbass." And then he like he's the only president that has come like, back. Other, yeah, yeah, to come back. Yeah, right. Um, so anyway, okay. So uh, he he was glad that Mr. Harrison won the election. This connection of her grandfather with the history of the United States had led the eldest child Leah to several confusions, which he had passed on to each of the others in turn. Chief of these was that President Cleveland, wrongheaded as he might have been, was second in importance over George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> they, they believed that during his administration, the, the capital had been Cleveland, Ohio. They could not place Abraham Lincoln in time, but they could easily do so in space for Uncle Ernest, their Aunt Kathleen's husband, had gone to the University of Nebraska, which is in Lincoln, where, but for a fluke, he would have graduated summa cum laude. So it's just like... I mean, it, one, that's a hilarious paragraph. The sort of self-importance of this kind of bourgeoisie, but that's also like, I mean, because I, I said that like that it's so, it's so striking if, if you're like mainly like kind of reading East Coast novels uh, to see like St. Louis as like the metropolis. The novel kind of like hits at that a little bit like that, like, hey, look at, the, you know, it's like these, these these people think they're so bourgeois and fancy, you know, they think that Cleveland was the capital of the country, you know, like, so, so like, and, and so, so like there, the, the idea that there would be like an eastern bourgeoisie that would laugh at that but that that is like completely like not you know cognizant uh they're not cognizant of that so like in some ways like they they have their own sort of form of this class that's kind of its own thing but anyway but i mean so there, there are the claims about the bourgeoisie there but i think there is also this really interesting tension that gets to the gender concern the conflict between these two forms of the grandfather like grandfather bonnie and then rancher man who's also still super rich grandpa kenyan but it's also like, basically yeah. the only person in this whole book who is nice to Molly. Yeah, he yeah. is. Yeah, that's right. Right? There's something about him that gets her. It's partly that she's, you know, she's very, she's, she's, a, weird, she's a weird person. And not because she's a kid. She's not kid weird. She's just weird. Yeah. And his, he has a degree of softness that's like, seems to be incompatible with bourgeois masculinity, especially this bootstrappy western version of it mm-hmm. and so even those moments are punctured gene stafford as the as a sort of like you know implied narrator here is not invested in upholding these gender positions no not at all not at all well and it's interesting too uh as, as i think i might have said earlier that the because the dad like the uh the faucet dad is dead like when the kids are very very young the youngest kids are very very young he's not almost not mentioned in the novel at all but so this 
classed masculinity or masculine tension comes via the their maternal grandfathers. So it's like this form of patriarchy, this tension in this form of patriarchy, but that is present via the maternal. And I think, I mean, there's also like, I think very Freudian directions you can take that in as well, you know? Yes. So that's the thing because uh, the father and the Molly and Ralph's father and grandfather Kenny, I think are to Molly the only two forgivable people or something she says yeah. or yeah. on yeah so i they don't go I into do her think... book about the people who are like dead to her yeah y- yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and they're 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 the only two yeah. and so it's like she can't have the electra complex so she gets nothing yeah 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 I also like you reading that paragraph. I was like, why is Jane Stafford not like the most famous writer of the 1940s? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. Jesus so Christ, is that good? No, it is. And it's, and it, it, again, like, I mean, you definitely have a lot of feels at the end of this novel. And it's, it, it, oh, it oh ends God, on a yeah. brutal note. But like, that could sort of make you forget how fucking funny, like, so much of it is, you know? It's so funny. And like I said, I think that we can't ignore how difficult and important it is to write in the sort of point of view of a child that does not make it about the end of innocence and that does not make it about like it doesn't at any point minimize the intelligence and importance of it you know that that like there are books that are written from the point of view of a child that are so illustrative of like the fuckery that is how adults have decided this world should operate yeah (laughs) You know, that are like based on really obsessed, obsessive class and gender forms. Yeah. Yeah, because the child has the defam- defamiliarization, but cannot get the distance. Right. They're, they're literally oh, unable point. to do it. They're, you're stuck. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's why grown up sovereignty is like such a privilege, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's fucking yeah. great, dude. Like, we do, not, I actually appreciate it. I have to say a lot. I don't think yeah. enough adults are like appreciative of their sovereignty. <laughs> uh, should we play a game? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's play a game. As you, as I think we've talked about a little bit, the experience of being just done reading this book and then having some distance from it, you start to remember the funny stuff. So I was in a, I was in a bad place when I made this game. And um, you're going back so to I grad went, school. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm gonna be a grad student again. You've so I'm had getting so sad. much grad school. Yeah, I'd be the most grad schooled individual <laughs> who's ever been to grad school. I haven't actually done the math on it because it's gonna be scary. But anyway, <laughs> well, a real housewife did congratulate you. Yeah, yeah that's the big thanks to, to Megan and big thanks to Kelly Dodd again. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just think I was I was thinking we we. Finish March Madness and where's where's July Sadness? So so I was setting up a kind of tournament of champions here of sad things. I went on I went on ranker.com to look for sad things. It's where you kind of can it's where you uh, you know you do exactly that. You upvote, downvote. And the pages that I were on asked you to rank, uh, say yes or no to is this devastating? Yes, yeah. So okay. um, but anyway, I didn't right. Uh, I didn't use those. I didn't find them devastating enough. Um, but I... <laughs> I was going to say, like, did they fulfill your criteria? <laughs> yeah. 
I have I have sad literary and one one filmic matchups, and I just would love for you two to tell me which one is sadder. Oh God! And okay. there is an objectively correct answer here to all of them. Oh no! Yeah, there are there's there's some film thrown in here, two films thrown in here. Okay, so our first head to head matchup is Beth March, lover of dolls and being being slightly disturbing mm. from Little Women, versus. Little Eva from Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh my Cabin. god! <laughs> yes, a a blonde angelic child who is who's one of the four not racist people in that entire book. <laughs> Dies yeah. immediately. So, uh, who's a sadder character? Beth, who goes to heaven for uh, to teach her sister a lesson, or Little Eva, who goes to heaven to she sure doesn't to solve yeah. racism, but. I mean, I like I even I I have to uh, default to Little Eva as sadder because Beth doesn't make me sad so much as deeply uncomfortable. Like uh, Beth, <laughs> Beth is a Beth is a dead-eyed psychopath. Um, yep. I don't. I mean, she just fucking starves birds to death because she's like, oh man, I space that. It's funny. Yeah. And, then, and then like and then like her occupy. It's I don't know. There's always something a little unsettled. I mean, okay, this is a different than like the invalid character or something. But like there are characters in 19th century fiction whose job is to be sick. That it's in a way that like you're you're just you're very into your own like you are the specter of death, and that is weird. You know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so I, I just find Beth a, a, an unsettling psychopath, so I'm going to go with Little Eva. So I'm going to go with Beth for a weird reason, which is that her death makes Joe sad. And Joe is like, there's no character in Uncle Tom's Cabin that I give a shit if they're sad or not. Right. And there are moments of that book that are that are great, but like, I don't really care. But right. I care that Joe is sad. Right. Aww. Joe is definitely the best character in that novel, so. Oh. She's one of the best yeah. characters ever. I love her. Yeah. yeah. School cell. And now we have nice things to say about little women too. So it's like, it's, oh, it's, shut what, up. A, what a gift. <laughs> what a gift. Are right, you ready for number two? Yeah. Okay. We have Puff the Magic Dragon of the Peter, Paul, and Mary song about a dragon who develops clinical depression when a boy <laughs> named after stationary stops visiting him. <laughs> or the Velveteen Rabbit. The a little child sweet bun bun who gets tossed into fire sort of crawls out because the child has scarlet fever. Puff the magic dragon is the saddest thing I can think of. Yeah. Yeah, it's really sad. I don't know, man. The Velveteen Rabbit. I mean, and also the, there there is the yeah. Oh cool. We also we got our outro music. But no, that is very sad. I, but I will say the Velveteen Rabbit like fucked me up, up, up when I was a when oh I was God. a small child, um, and and it still stayed with me. That's a messed up way. I don't know. Literature for young children is like yes, and then there was yellow fever, and the boy died, but the girl lived. And now, you know, it's like okay, <laughs> all right, man. So yeah. it's a half happy ending, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the past. Yeah. In our yeah. prep, we talked about where the red fern grows, which is sad to the point of like, is this person a sadist? Because I haven't read that because it's too sad. Yeah. I read it when I was like eight and I remember distinctly not being able to sleep the whole night because it upset me so much. Yeah. yeah. Aaron was, that was flowers for Algernon for me. <laughs> I mean, that's really, Aaron was telling me that he remembers details of that book that I can't remember about like my favorite novel. Cause it's yeah. so affecting to read it as a kid. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. That's my memory of it for sure. All right. So you've got, you've got your choices here. Here's your next sad question. See if you can get sad about this. Uh, we have Aslan 
C.S. Lewis's Jesus Lion from the Chronicles of Narnia versus Mufasa. I'm going to say it's of the Disney movie. The other, it's another less heavy handed Jesus Lion. Yeah. <laughs> More of a Hamlet lion. Yeah. More of a Hamlet yeah. lion. Yeah. Which is sadder? Yeah, which is sadder. Oh, Mufasa. Yeah, I, I agree. You I have that. to kill Jesus yeah. for the thing to happen. Right. Right. Also, right. I mean, I don't know. C.S. Lewis is, uh, it's hard for me to stop rolling my eyes long enough to get <laughs> to cry. Right. So, uh, no, I just, and, and my, my kid is, is sort of at the, now at the Disney, Disney movies are, are, are his jam age. And so watch, uh, the Lion King again, not, not that long ago. It's like, Oh, I'm a tough 40 year old man. I, this will be no problem. And yeah, like when, when Mufasa dies, it's still like, Oh my God. <laughs> so. oh, dude, <laughs> when my dad would take, I'm sure I've said this before. My dad would take us to Disney movies. Yeah. Like I remember a- Every single one, he was sobbing. Like Aladdin, he's sobbing. (laughs) Lion King, he's sobbing. Titanic, he's sobbing. That. The, the corporate behemoth of Disney sure does know how to do sentimentalism in a way. It's like, I don't, God damn it, I don't want to be crying right now, you assholes, you know. But. When we saw no, no. Inside Out at the theater near my house, the Logan Theater, my friend Stephanie was like, she sat down and she was like, I instantly regretted sitting between you and, and her husband, Richard, because I knew you guys would both cry through this whole movie. <laughs> and I would be in the middle. <laughs> I went to see it alone so I could cry as much as I wanted. <laughs> it's so good i definitely cried through that whole movie (laughs) i mean it's not it's not okay my huge sobbing movie is despicable me yeah the the, the scene where he's telling them the story with the kids is just like oh my god yeah Yeah. oh i can't yeah I have seen Despicable Me and I blocked it out. I think that's the I think that's the might be the trauma that I've missed with the minions. Oh, you have you have a sister and you had a close relationship with your dad? Like watch the first one and you will die. Yeah. I think I, I just I think that's why I have blocked it out. It's, it's too much. Despicable yeah. me is quite quite a big deal in our house right now. So Oh my I uh my kid is too little for that, but yeah. not for like content warnings, just yeah. She can't follow yeah. two hours of plot. Yeah. yeah. I'll mean, give my best yeah. regards to Gru. Okay. Are you ready for the... We've, we've got the... I'm going to blast us through the final two. Okay. okay. Um, actually, I'm going to make it a final one. Okay. The final one is the glue factory. Uh, so which is sadder? <laughs> Black Beauty, oh uh, Ginger, the horse who is a B word, but in a fun way, <laughs> dies a very sad death. True. Or... In the uh, in James, Har- I can't remember which James. Oh, it's got to be all creatures great and small. Yeah. Uh, James Harriet, the country vet who wrote lovely yeah. books about veterinary things, had a horse who died because his insides went in a way that insides should not go. It's on the and I just TV show. Take- the the most recent oh. season. They did that. They did. Th- they did that one. Uh-huh. It's also in James Harriet's favorite horse stories, which I highly recommend everyone yeah, go out and I, get. They have dog his favorite dog stories, cat stories, and horse stories, and they're all great. I've got to go for Katie with the horsey girl. Yeah, I've got to. I've got to go with James Harriet just because he, you know, is it, like no right to be that those the, like charming of stories. Um, oh my but, god! But Katie, as you are a horse girl, I have something for for you. Um, do you know the Margaret? <laughs> Henry series 
Uh, yes, I yes, do. Yes, Mr. Yochinkity. Okay. Yes, so, I do. So as, as, you, as, as you all know, I, I'm an Eastern Shoreman, right? So uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, so anyway, uh, Chinkity, Virginia, is uh, not all that far from uh, where, you know, the kind of like Delaware Shore. Uh, so like when I was like seven, I like loved the Misty of Chincoteague series. And so my parents were like, oh, you know what? Like, let's, let's drive down there. You know, it's like two hours for the South of where we <laughs> are. And I get there and, um, the, the, there's like a Marguerite Henry museum and they've got fucking Misty stuffed there. Like the taxidermy. And I'm, and I'm just like, oh my God, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> It was horrible. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, that's my sad horse story. Oh my god, that's like stuff. That's like old Yeller. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, stu- yeah. Uh, we stuffed the dog. That was yeah. wise. Here's Bambi's yeah. mother. Her yeah. head is mounted on a wall. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Do, do you want to hear a sadder horse story? Yeah. It's sad in a different way. But um, okay, so as you two know, I had an epic moving disaster, not but yes, two days, I don't know, time has no meaning. And one of the things, one of the, like the last problem that really set me over the edge was I was um, trying to pre- take everything out of drawers to, um, you know, so they get the furniture and everything. And I realized that there was a drawer, my bed has three drawers under it. And I realized that the drawer that's next to my nightstand, I haven't been able to open. And that inside of it are no less than 100 plastic horses of various sizes. Oh my God. (laughs) And some of them are like, are like collectible briar horses. I mean, they're not. I've been. I played with them as a kid. Like they're not. You know, I'm not like collecting them, but I'm just like. Oh, why did you keep the horsies? I am. You can pry my horsies out of my bed bed drawer. (laughs) That is wild. Um, I will note that. Tristan is absolutely right, and the Harriet story is sadder, but also because it fucks him up so bad in that book and the show. Like, he's so fucked up over it. I will also note in this book, in The Mountain Lion, Ralph is such, so he's a wiener in general, but also, like, who can't ride fucking Western? Right. (laughs) Like, who can't ride a very gentle horsey Western style? It's not a difficult thing to learn how to do. Yeah, you sit on the horsey. I mean, he's yeah. Again, that is. I mean, we did we did somewhat gloss over Ralph's weederishness, uh, which you know, yeah, yeah he's a weener. That well, we did yeah. pose, you know, that he wants to fuck his sister's heads. Yes, which is <laughs> which is weederish. It is different. Yeah, it's weederish in a in a in a deeply disturbing way. <laughs> right, just... it's much more sinister than falls off a horse. Yeah, yeah. How do you fall off a horse when you're riding western? I don't know. That was the the horse riding was a part of farm life. I didn't uh, ever get into. I just we're just getting sheep stepping on my head as as real as I. Oh, we used to do it. We used to do it at Girl Scout camp. Yeah, yeah. That's that sounds like that sounds like a very Girl Scout camp activity. (laughs) Girl Scout camp. I don't know what it's like now, but it's like the most. It's exactly what you think it is. Like it's so. Uh, all of the activities also like in retrospect I'm like oh my god were the counselors the absolute gayest people on earth (laughs) (laughs) just incredible like amazing 
Well, and I, um, also, I, the, 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 uh, the Girl Scouts are like so, so, so much better of like a youth organization than the fucking fash ass Boy Scouts, you know, but it was wonderful when I was a kid and it wasn't yeah. like, yeah. It, it's just called girls, at least in my experience, it was just called Girl Scouts because there were girls there. Right. It wasn't like right. Right. teach you to good girl things. Right. Teach you to sell cookies. They yeah. teach you how to be a success when lean in. <laughs> yeah, it's entrepreneurship. Okay. Well, thanks, you guys. I love this book, and I'm, it's gratifying that you loved it. So this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find me on Twitter at Teslersaurus, and Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger, and Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Better Red Pod, and email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only to tell us your saddest horsey story. <laughs> about the glue factory <laughs> <laughs> or your saddest mountain lion story but not where the red fern grows our intro music is love bronstein by the redskins and used with their permission our logo was created by jane bonsack of jb design and content please rate and review and subscribe next up we have our two-parter on middle march it is so motherfucking long i started it, it. oh yeah it's a it's big long. boy big girl thanks yeah. marianne I blame, <laughs> I blame Henry Fielding for this. <sighs> oh, thanks, comrades. by the sea And frolicked in the autumn mist In a land called Honolulu Up the magic dragon Live by the sea And frolicked in the autumn mist In a land called Honolulu